0: Hello, hello, welcome, or shall I say, welcome back to Jump the Stem Podcast for another season with talented, inspirational, and accomplished young scientists from different parts of the world who are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. I started this podcast in 2019 to infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. You can always discover more on www.DropTheStem.com And if you like what you hear or now see on YouTube, feel free to show your love and support. And now, let's get right into the episode and discover who is going to be dropping the stem today. Hello, hello, welcome to our job the stem podcast. I cannot tell you how good it feels to say that because we're having an accomplished, inventive, and inspiring scientist on here today as well who wants to take matters into her own hands, especially when it comes to water rights and conservation, being an internationally recognized environmental advocate and co-founder with her brother of Clear Water Innovation. It's highly important because, as we know, it takes a lot of blue to stay green. We're going to discover through Emily Tensh's invention how Tory pine tree's needles can contribute to helping drought-stricken but foggy areas, which was in fact featured in a National Geographic World Water Day documentary series titled Join the Millions. Emily is also a multi-award-winning inventor, including the National Stockholm Junior Water Prize, ISAF, Broadcom Masters, and so much more. Whether it might be about creating YouTube videos, hosting free STEM events, standing up for matters close to her heart, she is on the go for making an impact. So hello Emily. Welcome to the podcast. I'm just delighted to have you on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Yay. As you might know, our childhood and as growing up has shaped and played into who we are today, just as others sometimes use the technique of OVO, like from the beginning. And we're going to start with that on the podcast. And I'm curious, what spurred you to
1: investigate the wonders of our world? Yeah, I would say that my interest in science began um, all the way back in elementary school. It was a kind of combination of I'd say frustration and curiosity. So my dad broke his leg and he had this really awful chunky blue cast on his leg for a couple months and it was really awful for him. He couldn't drive, it was really hard for him to shower, couldn't you know walk around, play soccer, blah, blah, blah. And I was really obsessed with this cast. I was kind of upset at it. Um, so I decided to try to explore my own cast. And I had 58 Barbie dolls, so I would just make casts on the Barbie dolls um, and do a lot of research online about how casts are made. And um, that kind of got me into a whole like first aid um, kind of uh, uh, interest. (laughs) So I got so many like Band-Aids for Christmas and learned all sorts of things on my own. And it was just really a cool experience to kind of go through that. And that's, I think, what started my interest in science, because soon after, um, some friends were like, okay, you should probably join robotics if you like building with your hands that much. So I started robotics right after that.
0: Wow, that's so cool. I'm loving the story and how it brings back to your childhood. I think that most of us imagine playing with Barbie dolls, like changing dress-ups or perhaps altering their hairstyles. I did that. I did the one centimeter short, but I've never heard (laughs) someone making casts on Barbies. And I think what it speaks into is that you wanted to solve a problem and what you had around yourself, you used it, you implemented it. And I think it's so creative and and also inspiring to children who might not know where to start. They can practice making casts in Barbie dolls.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, my poor Barbie dolls. (laughs) They all have quite a few casts on them.
0: (laughs) And you mentioned that you joined robotics after that, something that was very practical and hands-on. Could you elaborate on that and what you did in the
1: robotics field? Yeah, sure. So right after I started Lego Robotics, first Lego League. Um, So it's robots and Legos, and it also has kind of like a science fair project component of it, and also teamwork and leadership um, called Core Values. So of course, uh, what kid doesn't love to play with Legos? So I got so excited to spend hours and hours every week playing with Legos and building robots and learned some basic programming. But my favorite part was definitely learning how to collaborate within a team and being able to inspire others with positive leadership. And soon after that, I joined First Tech Challenge, which is robotics, but with um, more intense stuff, I guess, with actual metal and wood and et cetera, and chop saws and uh, grinders. And um, yeah, I recently graduated from my team a couple months ago. So kind of bittersweet, but I love doing robotics.
0: Wow, congratulations. And, and it had really uh, a long time span, as you, you elaborated on that. Um, you are now going into university, but how sweet is that you could spend your time in the robotics team as well. You said it was not just purely about the practical skills, but also the interpersonal skills. What were some of the biggest takeaways from working with people and you know, being on that roller coaster because we're all humans and we, we try to make it work? but it sometimes can be
1: hard. Yeah. Um, I think one of my greatest takeaways was learning how to always put on a happy face and always um, seeing the positive in things. These competitions can get really stressful for my team. We have this really bad habit of changing the robot drastically a couple days before the competition. The night before, we're all staying up working on the robot. So during the competition, we're very, very tired and not on our best feet. But I think uh, together we've learned how to kind of optimize our spirit, cheer each other up, and just be positive no matter what situation we're in.
0: That's amazing, and these are skills that are universal, meaning you can use the learned set, uh, learned lessons in any kind of situation. So those are definitely beneficial. And doing some um, all-nighters with your robotics team members definitely <laughs> makes some good memories. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes, you know, the greatest ideas come from unexpected places. And I know that you're living in California. So we've started with your childhood. We've moved on to finishing high school. But now for this story, let's set the scene. Could you take us back to Torrey Pines State Park and why it was a peak moment in your scientific journey?
1: Yeah, well, my family and I are super, super big hikers. Last summer, we probably hiked every single day. And as kids, we would go to Torrey Pines State Park pretty much every weekend because it's such a gorgeous trail. I absolutely love it. And we live fairly close to it. Um, Torrey Pines State Park uh, is a gorgeous state park. It's right next to the beach. And it also is home to the Torrey Pine Tree, which is a very unique tree only growing in San Diego and the Santa Rosa Islands. Um, and as a kid, California was stuck in this decade-long drought. It was horrible. Um, everything was dead. No no lawn of grass remained untouched. I mean, if you walked past a lawn of grass that was green, it'd be like, oh my gosh, what are they giving their grass? This is magical. Um, and we had to limit our water usage quite a bit. And um, it was just not not a great time. And uh Yeah, everything was dead, was basically the bottom line. But when we went hiking at Torrey Pine State Park, I noticed that there were these giant puddles of water underneath the tree. And that was really strange. Where did it get the water from? Like, what's going on? So I asked the park rangers about the Torrey Pine tree, and they explained that the Torrey Pine uses um, the marine layer from the ocean, a very thick layer of fog that comes through, and it condenses it on the needles and uses that to get moisture um, when there is literally no rain. And I thought like, wow, that's so brilliant. I wonder how exactly they do that. Um, but because the toy pine is super rare, there hasn't really been any research on the mechanisms behind it. Um, so in the eighth grade, I decided to start my own research project, kind of just for kicks and giggles, wasn't trying to do anything serious, just really curious about it. Um, and did some basic investigations, and the results were just super, like, it was really surprising, not at all what I expected. So I brought it to my first science fair, and that generated a lot of interest among the community in San Diego. So that's what inspired me to keep on going.
0: Wow, I'm loving it because you were inspired by nature in a serendipitous moment, uh, but you <laughs> took matters into your own hands, meaning that you had that pattern in front of yourself, that that curious thing um, that bugged you, and you were aware that was few research or seriously like none was conducted on that. But how did you move on? How did you quantifiably test? Um, that special quality of the pine needles. Uh, What was your next steps when you were applying to science fairs in terms of
1: investigation? Yeah, well, when we think of how surfaces interact with water, um, the main terms that come to mind are hydrophilic and hydrophobic, hydrophilic being water loving like um, cotton and hydrophobic being water-fearing like wax. Um, And I wanted to test whether the surface was hydrophilic or hydrophobic, or maybe even both. Um, So to do that, I looked at previous studies of how people quantified that, and a lot of them used contact angles, which is great for me because it's fairly simple to do. So they just put a drop of water on the surface um, and they look at the contact angle between the droplet and the surface. Um, So I did some basic tests with that using from those little like, medicine eyedropper things and, on the needle. And I got this $20 microscope from Amazon that I, I recommend to literally everyone. It works so well, I'm still using it to day, Although I do think um, it's now $30, um, rightfully so, because <laughs> it works really well. Um, anywho, I positioned the microscope to look at the droplet of water and did that a bunch of times on a bunch of different needles. And I found out that the needle is actually hydrophilic. It's water loving, which is really surprising considering that pretty much every other pine is hydrophobic because they are covered in this really thick cuticle waxy covering um, to prevent water inside from evaporating. And, uh, you know, pine needles are obviously waxy. And um, I was just like, wow, this is like actually really, really hydrophilic. And I really wanted to get deeper inside of the needle, kind of see what is. Is, is the entire needle hydrophilic or are there small patches inside that could be hydrophobic? Um, so I needed a smaller eyedropper, which does not exist. So I was stuck for a little bit, because I didn't have the money to get like a really, really tiny micropipette, pipette. Um, and I just wasn't sure what to do. But um, I had a spray bottle for the hair or something like that. Maybe I was doing my brother's hair. And I realized that the droplets that come out of the spray bottle, some of them can be really, really tiny. So um, I decided to use a spray bottle and that got me what I needed with really tiny like micron level droplets on the surface. And I was able to observe the whole process through my microscope. And I discovered that there's actually a cool micro-pattern within the needle. It's not completely hydrophilic, but there are alternating rows of hydrophilic and hydrophobic, which is very unique. And I was very excited.
0: That's incredible. Before moving forward, I just want to ask you, what was the name of the microscope? Because I remember it was something special, the $20 microscope you implemented in your research.
1: I believe it's called the JUSION, like J-I-U-S-I-O-N, I think, I, I think that's what it is. Wasn't, um, it a digital, digital, uh, microscope? wasn't it a nickname for it? Like a dinky donk? Or- Oh, that's right. Yes, I nicknamed it the Dinky Donk because it is very Dinky Donky and it falls apart sometimes. But it, the main, the main body of it still works well. It's just the supporting structures that uh, are a little bit old at this point.
0: Okay, yeah, that was the vong the Dinky Donk. I really liked that when I read the nickname, <laughs> <laughs> so I gotta make sure to touch on that. Um, but yeah, that Dinky Donk
1: microscope brought you some ding dong moments at Science fairs. <laughs> Yes. Thank you. Dancers. uh definitely an <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The minimum viable product. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, so
0: you had that micro pattern in front of yourself. And what was really interesting is that you said that it had alternating patterns between hydrophilic and hydrophobic. Um, do you think that that specific property of not having a full hydrophilic surface might uh, help in, in harvesting or the efficient harvesting of the pine needles. Is there a connection between your findings between these hydrophilic,
1: hydrophobic properties and its harvesting power? Yeah, definitely. So at the time, um, I was also reading a bunch of research papers on other organisms, that harvested atmospheric moisture. And one of them was this desert beetle that lives in the Namib desert. And it's it's a lot more well-known than the toy pine needle. It's been pretty widely investigated. Um, and it also has chunks of hydrophobic and chunks of hydrophilic. So basically it has like a smooth shell. And on top of the shell, it's got little lumps. And the lumps are hydrophilic and those lumps collect the water and then they roll down the lumps with the help of gravity onto the hydrophobic shell and then it rolls right into the beetle's mouth and so in that case the different hydrophilic and hydrophobic areas most definitely facilitate the harvesting of moisture and I was um, pretty inspired by that to try experiments with the hydrophilic and hydrophobic micro pattern as well. Um, although now thinking back, I'm very thankful that I got to work with the needle and not a beetle because I think that would have made my process a little less pleasant um even though the needle has quite a bit of bird poop, but it's okay, it's not a beetle <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted All the to environment, you can say <laughs> environmental science indeed, yeah, it comes with some uh, pros and cons. <laughs> Uh, I copied the micro-pattern, the hydrophilic and hydrophobic micro-pattern, onto another surface because I really wanted to just alienate those properties. I didn't want any more confounding factors. And there is where I got stuck again. I think it took me an an entire summer to figure out how to copy this micro-pattern onto another surface because this micro-pattern is small. Um, It's not like I can, like, you know, draw it on. That, That would be precise Or Um, And I was thinking about 3D printing, but that's also difficult because you can't exactly print with two different materials from my, like, toy 3D printer. Um, So I finally, after going through a variety of um, ideas, figured out that transparencies and ink could work. So I found a transparency that was hydrophilic, and I found this laser toner that was hydrophobic. So I would design the micro patterns in Photoshop, which is great because you can get really precise in Photoshop, and then I would print it out on the transparencies, and um, that would be a beautiful micro pattern for me to do test, uh, testing on. So um, with that, I uh, did a variety of experiments optimizing the ratios of hydrophilic, well, hydrophilic to hydrophobic and comparing it to a plain hydrophilic surface and a plain hydrophobic surface. And I found the optimal ratio actually collects around 2.6 times more moisture within an hour than a purely hydrophilic surface. So I'd say there's pretty likely there's a correlation between the alternating pattern and the needle's impressive harvesting.
0: Wow, that's fascinating! And what you've just expanded on is truly the the hallmark of biomimicry. When you're inspired by nature, and you are not extracting something from nature for a selfish gain, but it's like a fundamental shift in in your attitude. Like you don't want to manipulate it, you don't don't want to doma- dominate it, but you learn from it. And um, what is and so great that you've expanded on the beetle is that nature is interconnected. So you can take one idea and you see the link between another. And yeah, it's just fascinating to hear you expand about that. And what I really like is that you explain these complex concepts, which you've been thinking about even for a summer to solve that problem in a very digestible manner, um, which which is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, nature is definitely a genius. (laughs) And uh, also, an interesting fact you said that you, you found that there had to be very accurate measurements taken into when designing it in Photoshop. Uh, we know that nature is also a great mathematician when we think about Fibonacci numbers. And um, have you found some mathematical pattern or an equation and accuracy when looking at those
1: patterns? Actually, yeah, a little bit. Um, I did a series of experiments afterwards. Um, with the critical roll off angle of the needle. So um, basically if you take a droplet, like where do you have to tilt the surface in order for the droplet to roll off? And um, I optimized that in relation to kind of how wide each, each of the hydrophobic passages were in between the hydrophilic. Um, and that matched up to an equation that was really complicated and I don't quite remember it because this was two years ago, but. It was really cool, and I did that. <laughs> You still got to name it, though. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, man. I've got to come up with a funky name.
0: yeah. Patent <laughs> the equation as well, because now you're in the patenting process. And um, I'm interested to ask from you, like, what is your hope for the development of your biomimicking device? Um, and how do you plan to
1: develop it in the upcoming years? Um, my patent recently got approved back in June, which was I was very very excited because um, I submitted it in November of 2019, and this is pretty quick for the USPTO. And um, so I patented the micro pattern as well as some version of um, a, a moisture harvesting device. And I would definitely love to continue um, my project. Uh, the the very like hardcore engineering part of it, developing an actual device, or maybe applying the material on like tent surfaces or clothing or et cetera. Um, And, you know, I'm going to college and hopefully I can find a mentor there who can help me out and get some resources there. Um, And after that, I would love to figure out how to get funding to, donate my project to areas that need water.
0: Go trees. I think it really
1: (laughs) is a great choice for
0: you to go into Stanford uh, because of the tory pine trees. But um, above that, I've heard from college students um, that Stanford is truly an amazing place not to own the science, background of it, but also the business. So there's a horizontal correlation between the two realizing your invention. And I think you will find help in no time, especially since you've got a patent. So heartfelt congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I know that you've kind of touched on that, how important it is to conserve water. I've talked about this with my friends, that you never truly understand the value of something until you've lost it. And I think it truly applies to water, which is one of our most valuable, if not the most valuable resource we have. Um, And clearly, you are passionate about fighting for water rights. Um, What are some of the biggest concerns the world is facing right now, in your opinion, and how you... And I'm interested in how you want to help those problems in clear water innovation.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that sentiment. Um, I was complaining about California's drought not too long ago, but um, in reality, it wasn't that bad because I know for a fact that every time I turn the faucet, there is clean water that's going to come out. And um, I'm really grateful for that because so many areas in the world don't have that. Um, one in nine people don't have access to clean water. And... Women and children have to spend hundreds of millions of hours combined every day searching for water, and that's their life. They go around cart water, which is really sad because that takes them away from education and development, and etc. And by twenty twenty five, I think it's like one in three people will be living in areas with water scarcity, and that's honestly so terrifying. And the fact that um, our we're it's just getting worse; it's not getting better at this point. I think the biggest problem boils down to basically what you mentioned earlier. Uh, I like to think of it of like financial abstraction applied to human affairs. So financial abstraction, I'm not great at econ, I just heard about this from a presentation and I thought it was interesting, so um, now I use the term, but it's like when money is further away from you, you're more likely to spend it, like um, how it's easier to take out loans and uh, easier to use your credit card than to use actual cash because The idea of money is just so far away. Same thing with water and natural resources. Um, When we're living in a place where we can always have clean water, there's always going to be clean water on grocery store shelves. uh, We're more likely to use it and waste it um, because we don't see right in front of our face the the devastating, devastating effects of drought and climate change. Um, And I really hope that public awareness actually does something. Um, I hope it inspires people to actually change habits in their lives. Uh, but more importantly, I think we're so focused on individual actions like, ooh, I'm so proud of myself. I uh, didn't eat meat this week, which is great. It saves a lot of water. Or woohoo, I recycled like three water bottles. But at the end of the day, it's not really like the individual human actions that make a drastic difference, but more so the the big companies and the major policies surrounding water usage that are going to be the most effective at stopping this crisis. Um, like what we use compares nothing to what Nestle, the, the company that has been abusing water in um, the United States and all around the world is, our impact is far less than theirs. So I would really encourage people to lobby um, to the right people to sign petitions and just I guess focus on the big picture. And uh, tying all the way back to your question, what does Clearwater Innovation do? <laughs> Clearwater Innovation is an organization that my brother Kyle and I founded together. It approaches the uh, water crisis from a scientific and youth oriented point of view. It encourages youth to solve um, environmental problems from home labs. So even if they don't have any resources, they can definitely get started. And I, um, I also love the aspect of Clearwater Innovation, where we do a bunch of events encouraging people um, and educating people about the water crisis. And we also have kind of a journalism segment where we write articles about it. Uh, so, general awareness, seeking out to youth and encouraging them to make an impact through their home labs. It's so cool that you transmit
0: that community aspect because just as you said that individual actions can be nice and a pat on the shoulder, it's really important to come together and fight as a complete unit, um, so to speak. But um, I think that also what you said, that the major policies are also going to have an effect on an individual life as well if they not only focus on abundance and what we have right now, but having a bit of a future mindset and how to take actions in order to um reach a goal that is going to help the environment and help humanity and our future generations because we don't have to be we shouldn't be so selfish to think about orally ourselves but our surroundings as well so i think that you are fighting for a good cause and something that is definitely going to define the upcoming decades
1: thank you yeah it's so funny i guess um human Like satisfaction is something we really crave because in some of the past interviews I've done I've talked about something similar and then um, I watched the end interview because obviously they have to cut a bunch of things and all all it mentions is take shorter showers. I'm like no 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 that's not what I meant like yes do take shorter showers but um, that's not the only thing. (laughs)
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Perhaps they wanted to focus on the very practical aspect of it, but it's better if we dig a little bit deeper and we are not just operating as scanning microscopes, just touching on the surface <laughs> or going a bit deeper. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Before moving on, I know, and I mentioned beforehand, which I wholeheartedly encourage the viewers to watch as well that you've had a National Geographic documentary that you're in. And I know that you talked about water conservation in that and, um, also the practical aspects, but how was the filming process? It's, it's a big company and how was that
1: filming day for you? It was so cool. An amazing experience. Um, it was really funny because you know, San Diego, it's like forever beautiful weather no clouds, sunshine between like 60 to 80 degrees, like just a beautiful place. Um, But the day, the three days actually that we filmed, um, the winds were just, they they were wild. They could not be stopped. They were truly a force of nature. they were like 60 miles an hour at the highest point. Um, Trees were getting knocked down. Um, There was lightning, but no rain. It was just really strange. And the film team, they stayed in this Airbnb Um, And they said that the winds were so strong that there was, like, dirt being knocked out of the roof and, like, landing on them while they were sleeping. (laughs) Um, So it was a a very strange weather pattern, to say the least. But we still found pockets of sunshine to film beautiful things. And, yeah, the whole filming process was just really cool because um, seeing the behind the scenes of what goes into that, like, We had three days of footage condensed into a two-minute video. And um, there were just things like they had me walk around for a really long time and like, look meditative. And I was like, oh, what what does that mean? You know, I had to channel my (laughs) inner probably non-existent actress. And um, things like when I pick up needles for testing, I try to touch them as least as possible. Or I use gloves because our fingers have oils that would mess up the micro pattern. Uh, but with that, they were like, stroke the needle. Look at it fondly. And, and pretend like you're observing it. <laughs> it was it was really funny. And I tried my best. Um, I think it turned out okay. <laughs> um, so that, that was really fun to do. And also when we were filming the interview part, uh, we had to push it back for quite a few days because of the wind. But after we were done filming the interview, we had to sit silently for 30 seconds while they recorded the sounds of the entire room. So that way they could uh, they could subtract that video from all of our prior videos with my voice in it to get like a really pristine sound. And I was like, wow, that, that's really precise. But yeah, I love the team. They were super, super cool. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Um, the video is really beautiful. And oh yeah, they flew a drone over Torrey Pine State Park. They like set up a drone in like two minutes and flew it. And I was really impressed by that. <laughs> Yeah, you were
0: walking up with your family on the top of the mountain and, and that drone shoot was truly, I think, a bomb start to the video. And I think you did more than okay, so you could definitely channel that inner actress of yours. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe I should change my career. <laughs> well, you can always add a job, you know, it's, how did he say that? Diversifying your income? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, that's a good one. Yes, yeah, Scarlett Johansson, watch out. <laughs> National Geographic star coming your way.
0: I think that's truly great because you could also spread awareness in that video. And um, how great that you were, you know, outside of your comfort zone and also having a bit of, um, you know, light on STEM and people getting closer to the innovations that you're developing. So definitely a very good job done in that. Yes, yes, thank you. And you've also participated at Broadcom Masters, which is, I guess, for middle school students, and then for bigger students in age ISAF, where you got a second prize. And we can say that you've spent a considerable amount of time there. And I'm interested, what has being a Society for Science alumna brought into your life?
1: Oh, man, so much. Uh I like to say that, like every time I go into a science fair, I make so many like not just friends, but like really, really good friends. I just click with everybody I meet in science fairs because we're all we're very like minded, but at the same time, we couldn't be more diverse. Um, so the network of friends and also adults that we get to talk to is just incredible, and it's great because going into Stanford, I feel like I know so many people, not just in my grade but also in higher grades through science fairs, and that makes me feel. A lot better walking into a brand new atmosphere. And uh, being a SSP alumni is it's just so inspiring. Um, like how lucky am I to be able to be surrounded by these people who are just that motivated and so brilliant and um, really just pressing forward. And yeah, every, every single science fair I go to, I walk out super, super motivated. And in my sophomore year, I went to this string of like three pretty much back-to-back science fairs. It was the California uh, State Science Fair, and then where I qualified for ICEF. And right before both of those, I went to the National Junior Science and Humanities Symposium. So by the end of it, I was like, Mom, this is it. I'm dropping out of school. I would like to work in a lab 24 7. Like, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to do this. Um, of course, that, that was a no go. But I only had one month more of school, and I was able to work in a lab full time pretty much for my summer. Um, so it just, it's truly. Yeah, just the most amazing, amazing community. And everyone's so humble too. Like, you talk to them and they're just like a normal person, and they would never, ever flaunt their accomplishments in your face. Um, all they care about is their work, and that's just so great.
0: Yes. You know, how, what a play what a flex is that dropping out of school and then going t- straight into research? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> like an early
0: Tuckerberg move, but um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I really like that. Um, Also about the community aspect and the fact that you said that they are not going to be very balloon-headed and just so full of themselves. Um, I know that I can attest to the fact that the interviews I've done, one of the greatest accomplished scientists out there are one of the most humbled ones. And I think it's because you guys, and I'm also doing research, so I can attest to that. We know the hurdles and the difficulties that comes with research and that makes you humble because you know that you don't have it all figured out on your own, you, you need other people and you need time to reset and you have to be gracious to yourself and that, that softens your heart and your whole approach, how you view the world and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. know that. So true. And I guess you have a special bond with your brother because um, he, I know he's a published and a rising author, but he's also in the STEM fields. Uh, was he inspired by you, by your
1: endeavors in science? I think so. He says he's inspired by me whenever he gets asked that questions in interviews and that always makes my heart melt a little bit. <laughs> Uh, yeah we're we're very close. we love to help each other out and i I hope seeing me doing research um, incited him to do the same. so yeah, he gets right now because we're both working on research. he gets the garage lab and I get my bedroom lab and we have to share microscopes <laughs> and it's yeah we we grammar check each other abstracts um, and I'm really grateful to have Kyle. And I'm sad that I'm going to have to leave him in a (laughs) month. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a hard goodbye for the both of you. Yeah.
0: But, But you've given each other so much. And I think that it's so inspiring seeing such a special bond that translates into working together. And working together, especially if you're a family member, can be a bit of a more difficult situation. Because when you work with someone else, you know, you go into the office, you spend an amount of time with them, and you go home, you leave the situation. But I think that if you come along or get along well, it can strengthen your bond, which happened in your situation.
1: Yes, yeah. And he cooks, too. He's a really, really good cook. Like gourmet, I I don't even know what. But (laughs) he cooks for me. Like, pretty much every day, he makes dinner for our family. And I'm going to miss that a bit. Wow, really? What's your favorite meal or
0: dish prepared by your brother?
1: Uh, couscous. I love couscous. I don't know why. The texture is just so cool with, um, like, bell peppers. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really does sound good.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, he's really a renaissance man. You know, being in STEM, writing books, cooking... Yeah, very well-rounded.
1: <laughs> he is,
0: yeah, he's a good dude. <laughs> Back into science fairs, um, you've participated in a few as you've mentioned previously, but what would you include in your top tier highlight
1: moments of science fairs you participated in? For ISEP, I would say some of my favorite moments were late at night with my roommates having deep conversations about science and feminism and politics and just all around because Oh man, the group that I traveled with, um, the girls and and the guys, of course, but um, the girls were who I hung out with the most because we had to share a (laughs) room. They were just so cool and like, wow, their ideas were just really, really inspiring. And I just love being able to converse with them. And at ISEF, I messed up my poster. I forget what, but it it broke some um, SRC rule. So I had to redo it and then reprint it in Phoenix. And that was very, very stressful, and I had to stay up very late, but my friends stood, like, they stayed up with me to do their homework, and it was just such a blast. Um, something that I would definitely do again, <laughs> and I learned a lot from them on that trip, so that was definitely my highlight of ISEP. Um For the Broadcom Masters, um, the Broadcom Masters was a really um, challenging trip, um, because it wasn't just the presenting the posters, it was also leadership exercises. So they took us all around Washington, D.C. to do these science projects in groups of five. So some of them were, we had to build, uh, we had to build a remotely operated vehicle, like a robot that goes underwater and picks up a sample of soil and comes back up. We also had to design a brain for a hundred million years from now. And, uh, you know, just funky projects like that, super, super fun really enjoyed it, but they really filled up our days. So it was really exhausting. And plus the time change from <laughs> California to DC was pretty difficult. And uh, I loved the people there, but it was just pretty stressful to say the least. So um, the award ceremony where I found out that I won a grand prize, like, oh man, that was just everything to me. Uh, it made me so much more confident in my leadership skills. I was having a bit of an identity crisis during the competition because I felt like sometimes I had to pretend to be like an extrovert when I am most definitely an introvert and I was just worried that you know am I enough is the way I communicate like appealing to people and I was just um really concerned about kind of the way I presented myself and to just have everything that I was kind of just like Confirmed as a person, you know, like I am enough. I'm a good leader. I'm a good scientist. And uh, I was just so, so grateful to have that opportunity.
0: Wow. A lot of things like, first of all, midnight conversations are the best. And You know, I'm just grateful to hear that you've had such a helpful group of friends with you that you could make so fond memories with. And really interesting what you said that perhaps we have a predisposition that introverts cannot be charismatic leaders. Uh, But I've thought about that for a while because uh, being an extrovert myself, I really like hanging out with introverts because they (laughs) do not have that, you know, very perhaps outgoing charisma, but there's this very calm energy. There's this stability within introverts that can be a very good and outstanding quality, even though, you know, you're not the one always to grab the microphone, but but you you represent a stable force. And I think that introverts should be appreciated in the scientific community. Just want to put it out there.
1: yeah thank you it means a lot i i think i'm technically an ambivert now i took the test but i feel like an introvert okay what (laughs) test did you take i gotta ask oh man i forget the name is it the myers-briggs MBTI one yes yes um although now that i've learned about the bad origins of it i probably wouldn't take it again but uh yeah ambivert slash introvert question mark i don't know (laughs) I think that also the experiences
0: that you've had at science fairs have helped with, you know, not just like, not the introversion, because it means like, where do we gain the most energy from, where our social batteries are going to be re- refilled. I know a lot of introverts who went into science fairs and they came out as extroverts, in their opinion. <laughs> so I think there's a whole personality change, identity crisis, everything thrown into the mix. <laughs> Oh yes! Oh yes! (laughs) What I see in in your expansions on how you do research is that you have a problem and you look around yourself and you find an item, you find an idea um, that is going to fit as a what was that game called? Like okay, we can say like a Tetris piece or a Lego piece into what you've been looking for. But how can someone start solving environmental problems? Because I think they seem as a daunting task at first and they might be facing some possible obstacles like lack of resources, support, or motivation.
1: I think people just have to know that everybody wants to help you. Like in this community, um, everybody wants to support each other. So if you have an idea and if you have any questions, like. Find a professor in that area and literally email them. Email them. They want to help you. They want to support you because you are doing a really, really cool thing by putting yourself out there and getting started on a new idea. Um, email me. Yeah. And, you know, send me a message on LinkedIn and I'll respond. <laughs> and uh, if, if there's um, any, like, because I know brilliant ideas are just such like a, kind of like an abstract concept, like, What do you mean a deemed on" moment? Like it's so hard to get to that point, Um, but sit in it. Think about it. Um, Shower thoughts are the best thoughts. Read papers, um, explore the area. As long as you truly put your heart and soul into it, which is what you will do. If you actually care about it, then you will be fine. You will be okay. Don't worry about it. Be confident in yourself because you got this.
0: Yeah. When there's a will, there's a way. I 100% agree with that yes and the listeners especially if they're starting our research should follow your advice i know that um at times i send like emails to professors who were very big names in the field and they responded like they are really helpful so don't be afraid of the titles just uh be sure about your objective and be open to criticism and uh, learn from your mistakes Definitely. The next one is going to be linked to a number. So if you were to list three essential characteristics of
1: a scientist, what would those be
0: in your opinion?
1: I think the first one is persistence, because science can be really frustrating. And as long as you stick with it, you're going to get somewhere. It may not be where you wanted to go originally, but it will be somewhere and that someplace will be very productive. Uh, The second place, uh, not place, second quality, I'd say, uh, is being humble, like you mentioned earlier, because um, nobody ever, ever will be able to grasp science in its entirety, and no one will ever be able to come even close to that. And that's why there are many scientists specializing in many different fields. And that's why they need to come together and work together. So being humble and being willing to ask for help being willing to acknowledge when you don't know what you're doing or you're not right, I think that's really important. And the third one, I think, is the biggest one. And I find that this is a quality in the people I admire most, um, are the people who are really, really big dreamers and they're focused on long-term, instead of being obsessing over, like, oh, this competition or, you know, this short-term accomplishment. They truly, truly, see what's out there and see how big of a field there is to grow in, how science is, you know, ev- anywhere you go in science, you're walking on unpaved territory, and they really rebel in that. So humility, persistence, and being a big dreamer will, I think, get you to a lot of places.
0: Yes, I'm loving those three qualities, because um, I think that's If we're talking about biomimicry, I was just reminded of salmons who have to, especially the mothers, have to migrate to a lake and to go up north and they have to swim against the current. So they have persistence, humility, and the big picture to get to the lake and lay (laughs) their children. (laughs) That is a good analogy. The next one, the if question department, I've kept that segment because we like to think about the if questions and the possibilities associated with them. So the first one is that if you were a sort of legal legislation, what would you change about our
1: society and why? That is a really great question. Um, This is not very related to my project, but I do think the healthcare system needs to be completely, at least in America. America's healthcare and drug discovery process is it's not it, <laughs> so I guess to focus on drug discovery, it's such a risky business um, I mean you're really looking for it and you don't want to haste back there and if you start a drug company, chances are you are going to go bankrupt and you won't find anything useful and you won't pass through the FDA process because it's so expensive to do that. Um, And I do wish that process were changed. I wish more funding were allocated for that because new drugs are so important. Um, We don't want people with orphan diseases to have to use every single penny in their bank in order to get treatment for their diseases. That's just really cruel and not fair. So I do wish the drug discovery uh, whole system were renovated. So, of course, drugs still must be safe, but at least uh, make it more tangible for people to go after drugs. Uh, healthcare. Ooh, that's, that's also a beast. (laughs) don't want to go into too much detail here, but, um, healthcare is so expensive, so expensive. I mean, why are people dying when, when their diseases are preventable? Like that's truly a tragedy and the United States spends the most in healthcare and it's not very effective. So that whole system needs to go out the door. Um, But in a more general sense, if I could do anything with legal legislation, I would say I would establish a website that's similar to Reddit so that people can post their new policy ideas. Because it's so difficult for people like average citizens, if if they have a great idea for a new policy, it's so hard for them to get it from their brains to like the governor's brains. And um, lobbying is expensive, it takes a lot of effort, and gee whiz, I wonder why rich people have ideas that are more suited for theirs, Um, you know. So I think a website that's nonpartisan and allows everyone to submit policy ideas, and then you can upvote which policies you agree with, so that um, policymakers have to look at them, and it's right in their face what the people want, I think that would be really great
0: yes well you've touched on various aspects that i think are are hot and trending right now not in the greatest sense um but i think that that platform could be very innovative because as you said that getting your idea up there can be really frustrating because it just defies or it has to define the law of gravity because what usually happens is we get it from up and down from north to south <laughs> and things can go to south you know, in the process meanwhile but yeah, that, that would be great because then I think that people are open to collaboration, but we don't really have those platforms or just a healthy debate. A debate. Uh, what I see right now that they're very polarizing opinions and it's hard for people to subtract perhaps their emotions from their logical reasonings. And perhaps in a written form, it might be more polite in a way. I don't know. So thinking about your (laughs) next dimension right there, being a policymaker. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is that if you could have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, who could you invite and why? And also disclaimer here, I know for many students that you received this exact question from your college admission papers. And I'm sorry, but I received (laughs) such interesting answers that I think that those college admission offices know something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I actually did a college essay on this, but I, I was asked this by uh, by another scholarship group, um, Davidson, uh, but I did have to elaborate. So yeah, good question. John Adams, I know it's a really strange question, but in history class and 11th grade, we read a ton of John Adams original journal entries. And I discovered that this dude is so funny. Like most people won't think of John Adams and be like, oh my gosh, what a comedian. But we have such similar sense of, of humor and it's, it's, I, I don't know. I think we would have been great friends if we were the same age. Uh, but on a more serious note, um, I would love to discourse with a founding father who was, he what he he was really set in his path. He was quite a stubborn guy and he knew what he wanted to do, but more, more importantly, he like held his morals and I respect that so much. And I care a lot about politics. Um, I'm working for the mayor this summer as an intern of San Diego. So um, I'm learning a lot about our government and a lot about what's wrong with our government. So being able to go back over it with a founding father would be, I think, a very productive session. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that would be amazing and just to hear his opinion on the politics of today, um, have a conversation on that. But since you're working for the mayor, I'm interested, have you had some culture shocks in terms of getting into politics and seeing the nitty gritty details of working in that office uh, where there some unexpected things associated with it?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, the mayor of San Diego, I'm super lucky. He is just such a great person. Like he is so genuinely kind and he always takes time out of, the, of his day to say hi to us and ask how we're doing and um, just like a wonderful, wonderful person. And the entire office is just um, such a great environment and everyone's so spirited and driven. Um, but we're also in charge of like customer service, essentially, um, you know, we take the phone calls um, and we respond to the emails. And uh, we get quite a bit of hate mail because our mayor is gay, and I've been yelled at quite a few times by different constituents, and it's quite interesting. Some people are pretty nasty, Um, so those would be the culture shots. But in terms of the office itself, it's it's wonderful. It's everything I could have hoped for. And um, in the future, I hope to model anything I do off of that as well. That really is a culture shock, and that speaks into
0: also a cultural issue as well. But I really like that you not only like working there, but the personality and the whole attitude of the mayor uh, makes you feel like you're working in a a positive environment. And I think that it's not always about the professional aspects of a person, but I think Maya Angelou said it, that uh, you don't necessarily remember the words someone said, but how that person made you feel. And I was just reminded of that as you were elaborating on him.
1: Yes. Yes. Oh yeah. That's a great quote to describe it.
0: And the next department is the this or that game. So as the question (laughs) suggests, you got to choose between option A or option B. Cool. All right. So we've talked about water a bit. So let's jump right into it. The first
1: one is swimming in a pool or in the ocean. Ooh, ah, ooh, <laughs> oh man. See, I like both of them, but I don't do either one of them very much, which is kind of tragic because I live right next to the beach. Um, I'll have to go with ocean. I love boogie boarding. It's so much fun, minus the sand everywhere, but boogie boarding is great. And I love the, how dynamic the ocean is.
0: I gotta ask, what is it, boogie boarding? I might've
1: misheard it. What is it all about? um surfing for non-coordinated people like me (laughs) so you just uh it's like a smaller board and when a wave comes like you jump on it so like you're lying on your stomach on the board so you're not gonna fall over or anything and then you let the wave take you back to the shore
0: oh i just discovered that i did that (laughs) (laughs) already what do you call it I don't know. I have no idea. I was a child and we were on vacation and I had that board and paddle board uh, with dolphins on it because I was obsessed with dolphins and become a mermaid. And I just remember going on the waves and having the time of my life. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I think you'd make a great mermaid. And, and a great hobby. You know, it, it's it's a sport on its own now. <laughs> Next one is TV shows or movies.
1: Oh, uh. I'm going to say movies because they're a little bit more accessible um, because they're shorter. I'm binging Gilmore Girls right now, and I really, really do love it. But I think movies, man, who am I thinking of right now? Uh, the book, the book, the book. Who wrote 1948? Uh, George Orwell. Um, um, there we go. I think Orwell was the guy who had a speech about how all art must be have a political message and usage to it. And uh, I, being a a tragic utilitarian, somewhat agree with that. And I I think the very essence of that makes movies more powerful because uh, it's more likely for people to watch the whole thing and more likely to create an impact on people.
0: Yes, yes. And I think we can see a rise in that, that there is a political or a cultural message in, in either of the shows that really speaks into the everyday happenings of our lives. I like Gilmore Girls, and I think the character dynamics are also very entertaining to see. Um, I know that that's a big, big debate in the community, and since I know that you're watching Gilmore Girls, who do you think was the best option as a boyfriend for Rory? I gotta ask.
1: (laughs) Oh man, I'm not very far in, so I've only hit Dean and Jess, and I don't like either, and Tristan, obviously, not Tristan. Dean is kind of boring, he's very sweet, but he doesn't have his own ideas, and just so far is still, he's still being a butthole, so I think Rory should be single for a little bit, but I heard it gets bad, better and boys mature as they do. Uh, who, who do you think? <laughs> the spar is going into fireworks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well... I mean, um, I have a predisposition because um, Chad Michael Murray, who plays Tristan, I know he is a very detestable character, very detestable character, but I've seen (laughs) him in other films and, you know, there is just some banter is going on between them in school that I think keeps this show a bit spicy, but of course PJ, but um, I think I, I like them in the show and I mean, it, it's really hard. I cannot either choose between them, because as you said, that Dean is a softie, but without that st- stamina, which I think we're attracted mm-hmm, to. Mm-hmm. But here's Jess is a bit too rough. So I think if, yeah, if he yeah. softens, I don't, I don't know, I'm saying spoilers, but if he <laughs> matures, maybe, maybe he's a better option. I, I don't see very much going on with Dean right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess Gilmore Girls would be the perfect example of why you don't need political commentary in order to make a good, uh, <laughs> a good uh, TV show. Minus like the feminism. I don't know the political ones just stand out to me the most. but yeah i love them movies just bring a little bit of escapism as you as Mm -hmm. you said
0: that you don't have everything thrown into the mix that that's happening right now and that's featured on the news and that's why i'm loving 90s and 2000 movies because that have that essential element of innocence and yes yes yeah okay we are on the same page on that (laughs) <laughs> and the next one
1: is if you had a superpower, would you choose invisibility or super speed? Invisibility. Uh I would be my own self-employed CIA agent. I don't know what I would find out, but uh actually I take that back. I would be I would choose invisibility so that I could steal brownies at birthday parties without um like Retribution. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, going into the practical level of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. And the next one is: Would you choose
1: milkshake or lemonade? Um, uh, milkshake. Yeah, milkshake. I love ice cream. <laughs> what flavor would you go for? Uh, are cookie dough milkshakes a thing? Um, yeah, I... yeah. <laughs> or chocolate. I'm like a huge chocolate. I am I think I'm addicted to chocolate. So anything chocolate is good by my standards. Okay, yeah, good choice. It's like chocolates are
0: a girl's best friend next to diamonds. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I know that you were a four-time medalist in the national Latin exam. So, which is an accomplishment on its own, but uh, the next one is going to be linked to two very bad dad jokes in Latin, or related to Latin, and you got to choose which one you like better, all right?
1: Oh dear, I hope I can still translate Okay, you gotta (laughs) this. Not that Latin, I don't know Latin, so (laughs) no pressure. Oh, okay. We're
0: related to it. Okay, so. First one, why did the insect that sucked blood every day decide to start taking Latin lessons?
1: I have no clue. Yeah, go ahead. I'm thinking of vampires right now. I'm I'm assuming that's not the right direction. Wait, I'm gonna read it again. Why did the
0: insect, insect that sucked blood every day decide to start taking Latin lessons? He was trying to be romantic for his wife. Oh, that's good, that's That's good. good. The second option. Why was the father so proud that his son scored a 40% on his Latin examination in college? Because he always wanted his son to excel. Oh, (laughs) that one, that one, that was good. (laughs) Going with option number two, yeah. Does, you know, knowing Latin help into the research or perhaps you want to take on the medical school route? I'm not sure what you are
1: planning on majoring in. Um, I would love to major in a combo of computer science and policy. Um, Hope to go into politics one day with a scientific background. And learning Latin has helped uh, sometimes with reading research papers because a lot of things do have Latin roots. It has helped my grammar so much. Like, after understanding a different language, like, oh man, my English grammar is quite a bit better. And um, I think one of my favorite parts of Latin that has, it's usually not mentioned, is that when we translate original texts, like we translated the Aeneid book two and some other books of the Aeneid, and like Ovid's Metamorphoses and Catullus's poetry and whatever, its it's just so beautiful. Like, it's... Art and it's—I don't even know how to describe it—and a lot of those intricacies like can't be appreciated unless you're in the original language. So Latin brings me quite a bit of joy. I haven't actually done like a deep Latin class in two years, I think. No, a year and a half or so. So I don't know how much I remember of it, but I really enjoyed my time in Latin.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. And as you said, that it's a. an, an ancient language but I guess it's also more complex. I know when looking up some Hebrew words um, that particular word can have such a deep meaning behind it. Is it the same with Latin that you can apply it in different situations but it's it can be so varied and so rich in meaning?
1: Yes, yes, and you look at like the history of the word and where it came from and it's like oh wait wait that actually makes so much sense and that's so cool.
0: Yeah it's like you're reliving history in a sense. And the closing question that just encapsulates
1: all what we've been talking about is what does science mean to you? Science to me, I think, is the ultimate selflessness um, because scientists work really hard every day for people they will never know, not just because they live in you know halfway across the world, but also because of we're working for future generations. These are people that will never get to meet because they're going to live a hundred years from now and yet we're still. Striving every day to improve the world so that they can have a better life than we do. Um, science also, for me, like sometimes I have really big existential crises, and I'm like, why, why do I do this again? Uh, I know the meaning of life and whatnot. That's a big question, and it's different for every person. But you know, even when I'm really conflicted about like what am I doing here? I'm just meat with electricity. Maybe this isn't even real. We're just kind of loading on a hunk of rock, you know, even when I'm in that hole, and I'm sure when a lot of scientists are like, we still, we still get up every morning and we do our experiments because um, I, I don't know, I guess there's some intrinsic human goodness that wants to help other people. I, I think everyone has that. And that, that truly is everything to me. I mean, like, even if, um, even if there is no higher than like higher purpose or higher being. At least all of us here, like, we want to help each other out. And that's, like, in our nature. And I think that's so beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not the science itself. As, you know, as much as curiosity is important, it's not like, oh, I really enjoy pouring this mysterious liquid in the beaker and watching it explode. Like, it's not that that motivates us, but the prospect of being able to make an impact on the world that is what drives us so yeah science is beautiful really grateful to be a part of the community and can't wait to discover more Mm, I've never heard it put in this way
0: but I think that um, it's such a brilliant concept what you shared just right here is that you're working also for people who you don't know and you're probably not going to see in your life but you just know the message that is going to be transmitted through your work or through what you've accomplished as a team. And that's really not just about the the end goal, what you see on the table, whether you get your name on that scientific paper or not, but also the process and those little moments associated with it that sustain that fire in you. Um, and I know that you are absolutely an incredibly inventor who is in biomimicry and does fascinating works but you're also someone who sticks close and true to her morals so i applaud you for walking that walk of authenticity and i applaud you on that and i wish you all the best in your future endeavors and you know always have fun in those midnight conversations
1: thank you so much you too you too this was such a wonderful conversation You're an amazing podcast host, like an amazing podcast host. Like, yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much.
0: Follow the pod on
1: Instagram
0: and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few
1: moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.